Spider. Now on to the field of politics. Edward R. Stettinius. Many of us may not have otherwise known that name. This gentleman was FDR's last Secretary of State, and in speaking of security in the political realm, said this, Happiness has many roots, but none more important than security. Happiness has many roots, but none more important than security. Now, on to the arena of Christian spirituality. Christian author and speaker Elizabeth Elliot, we all know that name well in this context, Elizabeth Elliot writes this, What does your security lie? Is God your refuge? Is he your hiding place? Is he your stronghold, your shepherd, your counselor, your friend? Is he your redeemer, your savior, your guide? If he is, then you need not search any further for security because you have it. So back to that question we opened up with this morning. What brings you that sense of safety and security in your life? Are you still searching for it? Perhaps your life is still unsettled in the deepest crevices of your heart because you haven't found it yet. Or everything you think is offering you and promising you safety and security keeps letting you down. You have not yet made God that source. Well, today we're going to see in the Psalms that it is God and God alone who is our refuge and strength. He is our fortress. Only he can give us what we are ultimately looking for. And my friends, he'll never let us down. He'll never leave us feeling empty. He'll never leave us feeling abused or taken advantage of, as we so often do to one another. And you know what? This morning, he wants you to know, he wants us to know that he is here for you today. He is a sure and steady refuge and strength. He is a fortress for you today. And you need to hear that today. We need to hear that today. So having said that, let's turn to Psalm 46. Again, Psalm 46. I'll give you just a moment. Okay, everyone should be at Psalm 46 by now. Follow along as I read aloud. Beginning at Psalm 46, verse 1. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Shelah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in her midst. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth 
melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Shelah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He makes war- he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray together. God, come and reveal these truths to us today in real tangible ways in our midst. Father, we have a need of you in this place today. We need these truths. Come and show yourself to be our refuge, our strength, and a fortress that simply does not compare with anything else, so that as your spirit is at work among us today, all these other fake fortresses, all these other Lame strengths that we've run to, that we've cling to, that we've become addicted to. May they all fall, break free from us. As we come to realize in a real, deeply, spiritually substantive way that only you are a refuge and strength. You are our fortress. Father, fill me with your spirit to accomplish that. Come, Reveal yourself to your people. In his name we pray, amen. So God is our refuge and strength when the world is falling apart. Part num- point number one. The first sentence of the psalm is, in fact, uh, by the way, the entire heartbeat of the psalm. In other words, if you get that first sentence of the psalm, you've got the entire gist of everything else that's going to follow. God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. That's the summation, in other words, the summary of the entire psalm, because it gets right to the point of the rest of everything that the psalmist is going to then unpack for us. In fact, that's exactly how the authors of the psalm understand it as well. That first phrase being the main point of the entire psalm, we know that because of the way they introduce what then comes in verses 2 and 3. With that word, therefore. That word, therefore, is a term of application. In other words, they're giving you the spiritual truth right up front at the beginning of the verse, and then they're moving on to, okay, what then are we supposed to do with this truth in our life? Now, those two words, refuge and fortress, some of you probably have strength. Refuge and strength, refuge and fortress. The word refuge in the dictionary of biblical themes is defined as such, a safe retreat a place of healing and renewal. Also a stronghold from which to launch a counterattack. Fortress, the term fortress, refers to a structure erected as part of a defense policy. A structure erected as part of a defense policy. Fortifications often protected the inhabitants and their possessions from the onslaught of war. Scripture sees God as the secure fortification of his people in their time of need, in their time of danger. So, 
As we trust God and allow Him to be our refuge and strength, we are taking both the offensive and the defensive postures by allowing God to be God for us. In another memorable psalm, Psalm 91, verse 4, we have these very beautiful words. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. And it is God who will protect us and fight for us. For instance, also elsewhere, in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 23, you don't have to turn there, 23, 29, at the end of the life of Moses, the entire nation of Israel is now about to cross over into the promised land. There's one last thing Moses wants to leave with them. And what is that last thing he thinks they need to hear? It's Deuteronomy 33, verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. And you here today, if you rest in Christ as your Redeemer, then you are that true Israel of God. And your Heavenly Father is a shield and a sword for you today. He is your triumph. He is our triumph in Christ over the evil forces that once kept us blinded to the truth of the gospel. Praise God for that triumph in Christ. Praise God for that triumph in Christ. That triumph in Christ also secures for us as believers, our daily walk, the triumph of our daily walk. We can do this. All this ought to ignite our hearts to triumphantly exclaim, as the Apostle Paul did in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, where he said, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers... No things present, no things to come, no powers, no height, no depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus the Lord. He is our refuge and strength. He is a mighty fortress, and nothing will ever separate us from that once we come to him through Christ. Now, the reality that God is indeed a refuge and strength is of such magnitude that it has the ability, as the text goes on, to keep us sure and steady, and as the text says, free of fear, even in the midst of utter catastrophe, with the whole world falling apart around us. That is, by the way, the the clear word picture going on in verses 2 and 3. The whole world is, is going to pot. The whole world is being destroyed. It's an utter catastrophe Yet in the midst of it, God is there. So in verses 2 and 3, let's look at that. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In other words, all that we know is strong and immovable, the earth, the mountains, the seas. They're now in turmoil. What's being pictured here is the complete destruction of the earth as we know it. All of God's creative activity in Genesis chapter 1 is now being completely undone. That's how catastrophic the situation is from the viewpoint of the psalmist. 
Does everyone remember the Indian Ocean tsunami on Christmas Day 2004? How can we forget that, right? That catastrophic event. Though the real death toll could never be known, an estimated 250,000 people perished in that tsunami. We so often focus on that massive wave uh, that washed away a quarter million people that we forget what created that wave. Remember, it was originally a 9.0 earthquake in the bottom of the sea, in the seafloor, that then caused the chain of events leading to the wave. Well, did you know that that earthquake released more energy than all the earthquakes on the planet in the last 25 years combined? A segment of the seafloor, so massive, by the way, was the energy coming from this quake, that a segment of the seafloor the size of the state of California literally was raised up and moved forward 30 feet, then giving birth to that wave. A segment of the seafloor the size of the state of California. God is our refuge and strength when the earth gives way. Did you know, by the way, that there was such a thing as a mega tsunami? And for you sci-fi fans, that's not something just reserved for people who don't have enough time on their hands otherwise, that they conceive these fantastical things. There is a thing called a mega tsunami. In fact, one has hit, one hit Alaska in 1958, creating the tallest tsunami wave ever recorded. How tall do you think that wave was? How much? A mega tsunami in 1958, created the tallest recorded wave ever, 1,700 feet. And by the way, that's an actual wave from an actual mega tsunami actually documented in Alaska in 1958. 1,700 feet. Now, listen to that. What else do we ascribe that size to that's being built right now in lower Manhattan? The Freedom Tower, 776 feet tall. So imagine that, a catastrophic wave as high as the Freedom Tower. God is our refuge and strength when the waters roar and foam. And barely a year after Hurricane Sandy, we don't really need to look too far elsewhere, do we, uh, to have a discussion on catastrophe. Hurricane Sandy was the second costliest storm in U.S. history. I was unaware of that. Second costliest storm in U.S. history. And the most devastating to hit the northeastern United States in the last 40 years. So even if all that is being created is becoming uncreated, there is still no reason for God's people to fear because God is our refuge and strength. He is a fortress. A very present help in trouble. What troubles have you brought here this morning with you? We all have them. God is a very present help for that trouble you brought with you this morning. The prophet Isaiah speaks about the same sentiments when he said of God in the book of Isaiah, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, and my covenant of peace not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So again, what is shaking you in your life right now? Let God hold us safe and steady and immovable 
in the midst of the storms in our lives and through his grace's preservation cause us to thrive all the more in our walks with Christ as he carries us through that storm as we seek to rely on him as our fortress in that time. So back to the text. Again, that memorable statement beginning at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains shake at its swelling. There's a river whose dreams make glad the city of God. And that brings us to our second truth. We are immovable when God is our refuge and strength. We are immovable when God is our refuge and strength. Now, the first thing that needs to be said is the intentional way that the writers bring in this picture of the river, beginning in the second section here, which is verses 4 to 7. In verse 4, we have this introduction of a river, which seems quite opposite of everything else that was just said, right? This beautiful picture of a peaceful and majestic river running through the city of God, bringing peace, gladness, life, and security. This theme of a river, by the way, runs throughout the scriptures. Uh, Many of you will recall that there was a river, for instance, in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, 10, there would be a river in the New Jerusalem. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. In those two places, the river is an actual one. Oftentimes, though, in Scripture, a river functions as a a word picture, points us to something else. It's a metaphor seeking to communicate a spiritual truth about God. And that's what we have, by the way, here in verse 4 with this introduction of a river. Uh, We know that because Jerusalem has no river. There is a water supply in Jerusalem, but not a river. So the psalmist is using imagery to shine the light on the truth that like a river that gives life to a city, so too God's presence gives life and peace to his people. Now we miss out uh, one of the most significant truths of the text if we miss the intentional contrast uh, jumping out from the text, right? In other words, the peace, serenity, and security of this verse, verse 4, is set apart not only from the turmoil, the whole undoing of the world in verses 1 through 3, but it's also meant to be distinguished from the raging and warring of the nations that follow in verse 5. So sandwiched in between all this, all this catastrophe taking place, you have this beautiful picture of a serene, life-giving river. That is God's presence for us and the storms that we deal with. So, if God is a refuge in strength, again, going back to the text, if that phrase was the main point of the whole psalm and the main point in, in the first section, section one, excuse me, verses one through three, at the outset we have that phrase, God is a refuge in strength. If that was the main point there, then here in the second section of, of the psalm that we've now entered into, which is verses four, through seven, the main point clearly is God is in her midst. She shall not be moved. God's people will not be moved. That's the main point in the second section. 
We are immovable. The city of God being referred to here, by the way, is obviously uh, Jerusalem being spoken of. It was here in Jerusalem that God took up his abode among the people he chose for himself out of all the nations of the earth. It's here in Jerusalem that his, this holy God dwelt in his temple. So, throughout the Old Testament, and particularly from this point in the Psalms onward, there's many, many references to the city of God because it's the place where God chose to dwell. And it symbolized for God's people peace and safety. Also, communion, relationship with that God. For the Christian, we interpret this through the lens of the new covenant in Christ, so that we know that God is with us no matter where we're at. We are not under the limits of the old covenant with its central location of worship in Jerusalem. We are filled with God's spirit, and we worship in spirit and in truth no matter where we are at. God is with us because we have God's spirit indwelling us. God is a refuge and strength for us no matter where we find ourselves in life. Whether that be metaphorically or geographically, God is there for us. He is on your side. Now, these twin realities in the second section, in other words, the presence of the river and the fact that there was safety in Jerusalem for God's people because that's where God dwelt, these two things work together to reinforce just one more time the unshakable reality that God is in our midst and that we will never be moved. And that's where we get the main point from here. We are immovable when God is our refuge and strength. So we can expect God to help us in our time of need. What need do you have this morning? What need is in your life right now? What need can you not get rid of that does not seem to be met? So we can expect that when storms come in our lives and the onslaught of overwhelming waves of doubt and struggle and unbelief come, that we will not be finally overcome nor moved because we are immovable in Christ. And we need to hear that today. Those who are in Christ are immovable. The Rock of Gibraltar stands the test of time as being that unending picture of what it means to be immovable. The Rock of Gibraltar, located off the southwestern tip of Spain, stands as a testament to its strength and power. Standing nearly 1,400 feet high, it has withstood multiple invasions throughout the ages, and at the same time has been witness to multiple world catastrophic events. And despite it all, the Rock of Gibraltar still stands, still immovable, Even though it's been fought over multiple times, various armies throughout history have sought to seize it precisely because of its wartime significance. Because it is so impregnable, so immovable. Now, despite long sieges, it seems uh, that there's nothing that could destroy this rock or its people. In fact... Uh, From this enduring image of what it means to be immovable, we've gotten this phrase, solid as the rock of Gibraltar. Remember that phrase, solid as the rock of Gibraltar? We take that phrase to mean this. It's used to describe a person or situation that cannot be overcome and that cannot fail. 
well, us here this morning, the Christian is as solid as the rock of Gibraltar. Immovable because we have made God our refuge and strength. God has become to him, to us, a very present help in trouble. And though the storms may come, and though the earth may still fall into turmoil, the Christian need not fear, for he has made God his anchor. Is God your anchor this morning? If so, you need not fear. The Apostle Paul picks up this concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, which I'll read. There in that great chapter on the resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul exhorts believers in that city to, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, why can Paul say that in the first place? In other words, there it's a command. There he's commanding the people, this is what you are to do. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul can do that precisely because as Christians, God has so wrought in our lives, so worked in our lives, that we stand immovable. In other words, he can now give us the command to be immovable in all that we do for Christ precisely because of what God has already previously done in our lives. Which we've talked about before, that that tension between the indicative of what God has done and the imperative of what he now tells us to do because of what he's done. We, brothers and sisters in Christ, and here through the ministries of this church as we seek to impact the world, should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work that the Lord has given us to do here, because it's God who has made us to stand immovable. That brings us to our third point, which you have in your outline. As our refuge and strength, he commands us to be still and know that he is God. Again, as our refuge and strength, he commands us to be still and know that he is God. Verses 8 through 11, that last section of this psalm. So here in the third section, at the very outset, we're invited to behold the works of the Lord. By the way, that's one of the only commands in this text here. The rest of everything else is really the indicative. It's, it's what God is going to do. It's what God is doing. It's about God. But now we're told to do something. We're invited to behold the works that the Lord is going to do. Our God is so confident about his handle on things, about his handle on the affairs of your life, that he actually invites us together through this psalmist to come and see what he's going to do among the nations. God is at work among the nations doing as he pleases, bringing the striving and warring of the nations to a halt, He has brought them to utter desolation, and he tells us to come, gather, watch him execute his will among the nations. This is, after all, the proper order of things, isn't it? As we come to understand our limitations and God's limitlessness, it is the only appropriate response for the believer to cease their striving and to allow God to be God for us allowing him to work out his will for us in this world. And then to respond in not only awesome reverence, as we watch this incredibly awesome God work in our lives, 
but also to respond in humility. Knowing that it, it is only our Heavenly Father who is sovereign, and our only right response to that is to quietly trust in Him. In other words, built into this, this idea of, come, behold what I'm about to do, really, spiritually speaking, is a faith response, isn't it? A trust response. We can only sit back and let God be God if we're going to trust him to be God in our lives. So in sitting back and watching what God will do, we are exhibiting trust in who he is and what he wants to do for us. An acceptance of the will of God in our lives. Now returning to the text, that phrase brought desolations on the earth is then expanded in the next verse with the inclusion of three things that God is going to do. He makes wars to cease. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Three works we are to behold. This trilogy of wartime action that's being referred to most likely continues uh, the thought of the warring of the nations that's going to come in verse 6, the raging of the nations. We know from these verses and from historical data that this psalm is being delivered to the people of Israel during a time of warfare. It seems Jerusalem, God's holy city, is under siege by a foreign power seeking to overcome it. And that's the context of all this, these analogies here. Now, time doesn't allow us to dwell here too long, but that's always a temptation for us, isn't it? It's always a temptation for us to look towards or outside of ourselves towards worldly elements when things get rough in our life. That's what's going on in this psalm. In this psalm, some of the context of the psalm is not meant to be triumphant as in the fact that they are actually living this and doing this. There is, by the way, in this psalm a gentle rebuke. Hey, don't forget, God is to be your refuge. Don't look as they are under siege, about to be potentially lost out to this invading nation, there's a temptation to look to outward elements to defend themselves. We too struggle with the same thing. Whenever difficult times come in our lives, it's not easy to keep the rudder of our ship sure and steady through the tides of conflict and turmoil in our lives, is it? It can be very quick to throw down any sentiment of faith and trust in God for something tangible, something we can at least see, because something we can see oftentimes makes better sense, right? That's, of course, opposite of what faith says. It becomes easy to want to leave that or this place of quiet trust in God for the sake of trusting in something we can actually see, a tool of defense we can actually pick up. So we need to continually remind one another to stay sure and steady in the midst of battle and turmoil and struggle in our lives, whether that be physical or spiritual. This means, by the way, that we need to be investing personally and deeply in one another's lives to know how we can be that for one another and to know when we need to be saying that to one another. We need to be investing personally and deeply in one another's lives. Now, I was very aware as I was preparing this sermon throughout the week that uh, there's a, another 
sentiment that can be evoked as we read a psalm like this. This psalm is very triumphalistic, right? There's a lot of triumph in this psalm. Or in, or in this psalm. But I want to be careful about over-spiritualizing the events and episodes in our lives because the reality is we all know we've been at episodes in our lives and perhaps many of you here today are in one of those episodes where we have these episodes in life where this does not seem to be where I'm at when I read a psalm like Psalm 46. This clearly is not where I'm at. I'm anything but feeling triumphant right now. So rather than praising God with hands lifted high on the victorious field of battle, of spiritual battle, we often find ourselves in pieces strewn about on the bloody ground of corpses left in the wake of battle. Again, we often feel downtrodden and defeated in the Christian life because of things that enter into our lives. So I want to be cognizant of that. I want to understand that uh, we, we struggle with that. So what do we do in those situations? Well, first, I think we need to properly understand the background of the psalm, which I already hinted at. Jerusalem was under siege, at war with an unknown foreign power, seeking to enter its impregnable walls. There was a temptation to look to others for help. So this psalm is not triumphant in that they were effectively doing this. Again, as we already said, there was a gentle rebuke at play in this psalm. They were tempted to disbelieve that God would be their fortress against this foreign power attacking them. And so, too, so the point here is that we need to hear the truth of this psalm when we are weak and when we need God the most. It's not just as true for us. Well, I'm sorry, let me say that again. It's not just true for those who are actually living this. It is just as true for those who are struggling to claim it as their own. If you are here today and you are struggling, then this is just as true for you. We need to be reminding one another daily that God is for us. Even when we come across a text that seems worlds apart from the situation we are in, that text is still true for you. Psalm 46 is still true for you today if you came in here and you're strugg struggling with many issues in your life. God is for us. He's no less for us in the valley than he is on the mountaintop. And just as when we are celebrating, let me say that again. Just as when we're celebrating this on the mountaintop, so too we need to be seeking to make it our own in the valley. Now, returning to the text, looking at verse 10, we come to what clearly for most of us is the most recognizable part of the psalm. Verse 10, the be still and know that I am God. That phrase, be still and know that I am God, endears itself to us because of its simplicity of faith, right? We all love that because it seems so simple, so simple, so beautiful. But at the same time, we'd be quick to admit we struggle with it. We struggle with this concept of being still in God's presence. In fact, I think it's the absence of this simplistic faith response that really is the root to all the other troubles in this text. Uh, let me say that another way. In other words, the difficulty we have with this concept of being still and allowing God to be God, being still in his presence and just being willing to hear from him, 
our lack, our inability, our struggle with doing that in such a fast pace of life really is the root issue at work behind many of the other outward struggles that we have. We fail to recognize and accept God as our refuge and strength, and we fail to believe that God is unconditionally for us, no matter the circumstances, because we've lost the art of being still and quiet in his presence. Philosopher Rollo May said this, It is an ironic habit of human beings to run faster when they have lost their way. It is an ironic habit of human beings to run faster when they have lost their way. We can all attest to that truth uh, in our lives, right? When hurt and other things come, we like to cover it up with busyness. Well, William Brown, president of Cedarville University, expands on that thought when he says this, the God of culture is speed, and we kneel at the altars of newer, faster, and more. It's easier to measure spiritual devotion by the number of church committees we serve on than by God's standard of looking at the heart in that famous text in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So with that being true, it's easy to see why we have trouble with this concept of being still and quiet in God's presence. In fact, it's quite the opposite of what our culture tells us to do. The phrase be still literally means to cease striving. It means cease unproductive activity for picking up another type of activity. It doesn't mean that we're somehow in a vegetative state, obviously. It's been said that we are a better advertisement for the things of God when we are doing less, not more. That's a powerful statement. We are a better advertisement for the things of God when we are doing less, not more. What kind of advertisement are we today? Notice here in verse 10, by the way, that it's the first occurrence of the pronoun I. Be still and know that I am God. In other words, in this section of the psalm, it's God speaking directly to us. It's the only place in this entire psalm where that happens. Point being is this. This must be pretty important for us to hear. God is speaking it to us directly. Be still and know that I am God. God is telling us today that we need to be still and let him be God And get to know him better by sitting back, letting him be God. Well, God is God. God is a refuge and a strength. He is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. So God is our refuge and strength when the world is falling apart. We are immovable when God is our refuge and strength. And as our refuge and strength, he commands us to be still and know that he is God. Martin Luther was a man who knew God to be a mighty fortress. Luther was, of course, the German Roman Catholic monk and theologian who, of course, we associate with what became the 16th 16th century Protestant Reformation. And if you know anything about Martin Luther... We often associate him with the study, the works he did on the book of Romans, particularly Romans 117, which is the text Martin Luther points to leading him to Christ. 
However, many of us don't know that Martin Luther loved the Psalms. Martin Luther spent a good chunk of his life meditating on the Psalms, reading the Psalms, preaching the Psalms. In particular, Psalm 46 was his favorite psalm. It's, of course, the psalm that we get his, his hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Luther said this of Psalm 46. We sing this psalm to praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. If you are given way to the implacable assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin, go to the 46th Psalm. Understand that God is your refuge and strength. He is on your side. He is for us. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you need to hear that. That is absolutely true, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley or anywhere in between. God can do nothing but be for us. He has covenanted to be so. Cherish that truth. Celebrate that truth. Remind yourselves of that when you leave today. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, if you've come in and it seems like your life is constantly in turmoil, you go from one turmoil to the next, there never seems to any peace to be any peace in your life, then I recommend to you, come to us. Search out why that is in your life. Don't seek to cover it up. Deal with it. Address it. Perhaps you have not yet made the Lord Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. And that, my friends, is the first step to real peace and security in your life. He wants to be your fortress. We're going to worship together now as Tim comes down and leads us in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress. May God be praised. <laughs>